The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Uh, lots of stuff going on in the world, man. Crazy times for sure. Uh, the president has the coronavirus. Cam Newton has the coronavirus. And it's kind of shutting things down, right? So hopefully we can get past all of this soon um, and, and it won't be impacting as much as, as it is. And now we look at a book um, that's thousands of years old. And so we're dealing with all this crazy stuff. We go to the book of Micah today. Now, Micah uh, is probably a, a, a one of the old, older uh, minor prophet books that you probably are familiar um, with one of the verses out of Micah that talks about 6-8, I believe it is, talks about um, the, to, the, 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 what the Lord requires is to love mercy, to act justly and walk humbly with God. Um, but there's a lot in Micah. And so when we jump in there today, uh, there's, we're looking at a, a guy, his name means who is like God. And so Micah, his very name, and again, during this time in history when parents would name their children, they were trying to really communicate something very important. So the name had a lot to do with the way the, the parents um, thought theologically about God oftentimes. And Micah's name means who, who is like God. And Micah is a country boy whose job it is from the Lord to go to the city and prophesy against sin. He's prophesying during the same time as one of the major prophets, um, Isaiah. And so if you study um, the book of Hi Isaiah, one of the incredible kings that are uh, talked about in the Bible is, is Hezekiah. He's one who really tried to honor the Lord out of many of the kings that didn't. And the Lord, uh, the Lord, the Lord blessed his kingdom as he led. And so Micah is sort of a, uh, he's out prophesying at the same time that Isaiah did. Their messages are very similar, but we get a lot more information, obviously, from the prophet Isaiah. And so what, what Micah does is he targets these capital cities of Israel and Judah. And so what is Israel and Judah? What's, what's the difference? Well, Israel was the nation that God promised that he would uh, make Abraham into the father of many nations. And so we have Israel and Judah, we have the, a split. They split in the kingdom. And so there are 12 tribes, and there are the southern tribes and the northern tribes, and most of them were a part of Israel, and then there were a couple of tribes that were a part of Judah. And the capital cities of, the, of these two um, uh, areas was Samaria and Jerusalem. And so here's a country boy that probably lives, we would say, maybe out Pittsburgh, Kansas, and the Lord calls him to go to Kansas City and, and begin to preach against sin in the midst of this area of his people. And so his message to the nation is clear. You are not following God and judgment is coming. And so we've been studying these 12 minor prophets and this seems to be a recurring theme. You're not following God and judgment is coming. And I think sometimes this causes us to avoid some of the minor prophets because the language is so strong. It's so, uh, we, we learn so much about the wrath of God. But if we look at any book in the Bible, we will find these themes. You're not following God and judgment is coming. You are following God and blessing is coming. Joshua says, today before you is laid a blessing and a curse. Choose life, he says. 
Um, Jesus even says over and over that if you don't follow him, then judgment is coming. And so there's really no difference in what we are following, even uh, thousands of years later, that God would call us to follow him. And so um, he alternates. The good news about Micah is, is that uh, some of the books, they just talk about judgment. And they just hammer home judgment. But Micah appears to talk about judgment and he balance and alternates between judgment and forgiveness and restoration. And so what he does in this book is he exposes every level of society. He, he starts with rulers, the prophets, the priests, and the people. And what was happening is they were oppressing um, the poor and they were involved in the worship of idols. Now, we don't worship idols. Um, and so that seems a little foreign to us. We generally don't have little things set up in our homes that we pay homage to. And that's what they were doing. They were uh, involved in some of the pagan worship of the cultures that existed around them, and they had adopted those practices. And they were putting these things before um, the law that was given to them through the prophet Moses that God gave to them and said, this is how I want you to live. And so we look at that and then we say sometimes, well, that doesn't, that doesn't really apply to me. Well, it does because an idol is simply anything that you put before God. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, it could be video games. It could be television. Um, it could be anything that you elevate to a higher prominence in your life than you do to God. You say, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, it's always measured by the investments that you make of the life that you've been given, which are really measured by time, um, the time that you've been given on the planet, the giftedness that you have, uh, and uh, the, the resources that you have available to invest in that thing. And so as you look at last week and you go, man, was I involved in idol worship? All you have to do is you have to look at your life and go, well, how much time did I spend trying to focus on my attention on God? How much time did I spend trying to think about who Jesus is and what he's calling me to do in obedience? It doesn't mean that we can't have any of these other things. It doesn't mean they in them, of themselves are, are wrong or evil. But it is our love of those things that begin to impede our relationship with God. And when it starts to impede our relationship with God, then it has become an idol in our lives. Whether it be, like, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it could be anything. It can be your own children can be an idol before God. If you place them and you're like, well, I don't have time for the things of God because I'm trying to take care of these kids, then you've forgotten who's given you those kids and that first and foremost, if you're going to have anything to offer those children, you had better be receiving something from the Lord because that's the only thing that matters. And so when we talk about idol worship in the Old Testament, we see that it is something that is extremely um, prevalent in our day and age because we are a culture that is enamored with pleasure and we want pleasure and we want it we want it now and, we, and then when that pleasure the newness of that pleasure wears off we need another pleasure fix whether it's in technology and devices or shiny cars uh, or whatever man we just we need something new and if we're not careful then what will happen is we will start trying to take this lack of contentment that we're experiencing and using uh, things, materialistic things in the world to try to fill this void that we're feeling, feeling, feeling in our lives. And so we have to be careful or we too will be involved in idol worship. Now, ironically, we're only going to look at seven verses today from Micah, and then we're going to look at a couple other verses from Romans, and, and I'm going to share some stuff out of, out of Hebrews. 
And, and so what, what's ironic is in the opening seven verses, the guy whose name m- means who is like God, he tells us um, what God is like. And so let's just jump in there and listen to the strength and the power and the imagery of the words this prophet chooses to use. He says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so the Lord allowed him to see a vision that he could go and then communicate to the people on behalf of God. Hear, O people, all of you, listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her uh, stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. (laughs) This is really important. That's strong language. God is saying, I'm coming to wipe Samaria and Jerusalem out. Like I'm taking it down. What's significant about that? These are God's chosen people. This is addressed to the people of God who have not listened and heeded to what God has called them to. And so one of the things that we learn about God very quickly um, is that, that God doesn't overlook the sins of his people. Now, we love to celebrate grace, and I'm a grace guy, and I thank the Lord for grace. If we're not for grace, I wouldn't be standing here teaching you the word of God today. It is the grace of God that has covered my sin. But we, have lo- we love grace so much that we often have, have changed it into cheap grace. And we think that grace is so abundant and plentiful that it doesn't matter whether or not we walk in obedience or not because we are covered by the grace of God. And that is an attitude that is offensive to God. Paul even says, just because there's grace to forgive our sins, should we go and sin more so that more grace would be in the uh, world? He says, absolutely not. That's ludicrous. And so for us to live in such a manner that we are cavalier about our attitudes and our approach to the throne, that we don't see God as who he really is and just think because grace exists and it's available that we can do anything that we want, that is a form of idol worship. Because we've said it's not really important what I think about God. It's not really important of how much of a priority I make uh, of him in my life because I know that he has forgiven me. I know the gospel and I know his grace will forgive my sin. And those things are true. But if we've really received the grace of God and we're really going to honor God and we're going to live the blessed life that is promised in the, in the New Testament, then we can't have minds that are focused on God and his gracefulness alone. We have to see the other side of God. 
And that's sad to say in our culture, even in the church, it is a side of God that is not taught about frequently. And it is the judgment side of God. But you will never find, and even in the gospel, that the, the good news about the gospel is, is that God, we can be spared of God's judge, judgment and wrath. And so judgment and wrath are a, 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 a part of the theology of God that are so important. And, and what happens when we look back and study history in the church is it's sort of like there's a pendulum that's swinging, okay? And this pendulum swings, and it swings to one side or the other. And so what happens is maybe uh, things get too worked up in, 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 uh, in legalism and how we we have to control ourselves, and the pendulum gets swung way over here till before long it gets stuck because there's a reaction uh, to the grace of God that this pendulum gets pushed so far over that we, we forget about the other side of God. And so it, it causes an imbalance within the kingdom. And we can look at this throughout church history. It happens over and over. And so what happens is God will raise up a teacher and he will raise up someone who will begin to begin, start a movement and he'll begin to teach to counteract that. Well, then the pendulum gets swung back down and it gets balanced, but it's not very long before it gets swung way over. And now we're out of balance on the other side. And so what has happened in, in the church, I believe, is that the pendulum swung for a period of time where this hellfire and brimstone preaching was happening. And so people were coming into the kingdom. They were scared to death, okay? They were scared to death that they were going to go to hell. And now nobody even talks about hell. It's because the pendulum got swung so far over that now we're afraid of offending people so we don't talk about hell. Well, I'm not afraid of offending you about hell because hell is a real place, okay? And it's something we need to be really aware of. We need to be so aware of it that the fact of the reality that if our kids don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. If our neighbors don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. So uh, if you, you go home and the, the, somebody asks you, what did the preacher tell you today? He said, all he said was, I'm going to hell, right? No, it's true. Like if we don't understand the significance and the gravity and the weight of what's before us, then it messes us up in our ability to follow God. And so that's where we're at as a culture even. And so as I talk about culture today, um, you know, sometimes I refer to culture and I'm talking about culture outside the kingdom. Right now I'm talking about culture inside the kingdom. It is the culture of the church. The church is theologically, um, the people of God don't know enough about God. They don't, they, they don't know enough about who God is and what God has taught. And so I, I see a lot of that in Micah. Micah, is, he, who is like God? He's going to tell you what God is like. And so there are three things the Lord impressed on me uh, out of these opening verses from the book of Micah, which I really struggled there at first. I was like, man, I'm not seeing this. Normally it starts quick clicking for me earlier in the week. Um, but this one took a while, and finally the Lord sort of impressed it upon me. And there are three things uh, that I believe the Holy Spirit is, is, is calling me to share what, with you, the body, what he is like. And what I'm going to share is somewhat frightening, okay, but believing it is quite comforting. And so it can be very frightening. I can remember a period in my life when it was frightening to me. But I now I'm on the side of it's a very comforting thing to see both sides of God. And here's the first thing that I want you to see is the Lord is active in the world. He is active in the world. Verse 3 says, 
Micah says, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. Now he starts with, the Lord is, um, he is, he is calling out a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And then in verse three, he says he's coming from that place. And that teaches me that the Lord is very active in the world. And why is this important? It is important because we sort of put the Lord in heaven and we are in, on earth. We put him in a divine box. So he is up there, he is doing his thing, and we are down here. And so anytime we think about God, we think about God is up there. But clearly we know from this passage of scripture from the prophet Micah that God sometimes comes down from there. Now we're not talking about angels, we're not talking about other believers. We're talking about God himself. Now is this a foreign thought for us to think about? No, it is not. There are things in the Old Testament called theophanies, and there, uh, and there are also things called Christophanies. What are those? Well, a theophany is when God the Father takes on a form of man. For instance, we have a theophany when God came and he, he, uh, he, he took on the image of man and he interacted with Abraham and he spoke to him. That is a theophany. God has left the throne and he's come to the planet. Um, we also have Christophanies. Um, many people believe that when Jacob wrestled with the angel and he would not let go until the angel blessed him. Many people believe that is a Christophany. What is a Christophany? That is when God the Son takes on uh, the form of man. And so, and he interacts with other uh, people. Now, so what am I saying? Or am I saying that, that, that God is still coming and doing that? I, why wouldn't he? He always has. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe we've met him and we don't even know. It's quite possible. The thing I want us to take away is this though, is that he is active in the world and you need to get a vision of that. You need to understand that God is active. He is not just distant up in heaven looking over and has ordained the affairs of the world and he's just letting it play out and he's totally removed from it. No, he is active in the midst of it. And he act, he's active, I suppose, sometimes even as he might take on one of these forms. He certainly has in Scripture. He is active in that he has an angelic host that he sends to function within the world around us. And you say, well, have you ever seen an angel? No, I haven't ever seen an angel. But I've had some crazy things happen before, and I've walked away wondering, was that possibly an angel? Okay? And so it wouldn't be foreign. The book of Hebrews tells us that sometimes we entertain angels. We don't think like that. Like, you know what we say as, a, as, a, as, as people, how, how screwed up our thinking is when it comes to thinking about God? We believe that when we die, sometimes people think that you become an angel. You don't. You're a human. You will always be a human. Angels are different than humans. They were created for a specific purpose. And so we are human beings that will receive, once we're resurrected, we will receive a resurrected body just like Jesus did. And so we need to understand that God is active in the world. He is active when we are involved in idol worship. So God is trying to do things on the planet. He's moving here and there and about. And, and here's the thing that's so important about these idols in our lives. They distract us from the activity of God. 
And so as we're involved in the idols that exist in our lives, we're distracted and can't see where God is actively working. So we're missing the whole plan of God and we're not participating in it when the whole call of God for the believer is to harmonize with his sovereignty and to function along with him on the planet. That's the first takeaway that I see from Micah. And, and, and this is important for us and because the application is that we need to pay attention to what he is doing. Here's the second takeaway. The Lord is a consuming fire. And I I think it's healthy for us to get a vision of this. Verse 4 says, The mountains melt beneath him like wax before the fire. You ever tried to light a birthday cake? All the candles, you got at the candles, your kids get a little older. At first, it's pretty easy. You just You get up around 15 and you light one and you're trying to go around that thing, that wax starts melting immediately. Just a little bit of flame and wax immediately turns to liquid. And so Micah is saying, man, the Lord is like that. Like he he has a consuming fire and it's a strong image for us to lay a hold of because what it says to us is that before the Lord, we melt like wax. Like when we get an image of God, We can't just have an image of God that he is our buddy and he is just like us. He's not like us. He sort of makes us into the thing, the same thing as himself by purifying us, but it is through the power of his consuming fire that he does that. So it's important for us to understand um, that this imagery is here to, to help us as we embrace it. How does it help us? It helps us to be humble. When I begin to think about the imagery of God as a consuming fire and that if I were in his presence for one moment were it not for his sustaining grace, I would melt like wax. Like that that is a truth for us to to get a hold of. It's to begin to realize a reverence for God and a, a reverence and a respect for the holiness of God and the power of God. Micah also says, he gives us another illustration. He's like... um. When water washes down a mountain and it just it just splits it wide open like a mudslide, it just comes and, and these are these are things that we can see the power of it, and that's what Micah's wanting us to see is that God is consuming like that. Now that's an intimidating thing to think about because we often when we think about God, we want to just we want to just think about as we're thinking about man, I, I'm supposed to pray. Well, it's good for us as we enter our prayer closets to think about if it were not for the grace of God, as I try to speak to him, I would just melt like wax. And that is the power of the God that we serve. And, and that, that reminder is there for us um, to help us be humble so that we can be humble and recognize I'm not the authority of my life. There is a consuming fire that exists in the presence of God that ought to make me um, be humble enough to surrender in obedience to go, man, I belong to the Lord. And what I do matters. Young people, as you're tempted, and you will be tempted, as all human people are tempted, but you young men will be tempted to burn and look at pornography through your devices. Like, it's all over. How could you not be tempted? It's everywhere. And what you need to understand is that God is a consuming fire. 
and get a vision of that and go, man, if God is a consuming fire and I'm burning like this within, I need to just for a moment before I decide to click that link and go to that place, I need to get a vision of the consuming fire of God because it may be the very thing that helps me to humbly acknowledge God and turn away from my sin. That's why it is so important to see God this way. You say, why are you saying God will burn me up? Well, that all depends on whether or not you know Jesus, right? Um, And so we look at this and we go, man, this is sort of intimidating what you're sharing. Well, let me encourage you. We avoid the fire by possessing the fire. So the, the real fire of God exists. There's no doubt about that. And we need to have incredible respect for it because it helps us to be humble before God. As we think about God, as we think about, like, you know what? Let me show you how this works. We're gonna go back to this prior point. Before you say, I don't have time to read the word, get a vision of God being a consuming fire. And what you will begin to realize is I'm not gonna say I don't have time anymore. What you will start to say is, I just don't want to because I want to do other things. You see how this works? You see what Micah is trying to get the people to see? There are idols before you. And you don't think God is a consuming fire. And that's why you don't think you have time to um, read the word. That's why you won't engage God in prayer. It's because you don't really have a vision of God being a consuming fire. You have him being a graceful buddy that is just going to take care of you and provide for you fire insurance. And that's evil, right? So, man, what am I supposed to do? I want to tell you what you do. You avoid the fire by possessing the fire. Micah 2.8, if we were to look forward um, and, and verse 8, as he's doing all this preaching, this is what he says. As for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. And so Micah says, man, this is what God is like, and I'm filled with him. And so Micah was chosen by God for the, um, for the fire to rest upon him for a purpose. So in the Old Testament times, what would happen is God would select a man, and sometimes he would select a woman, and his fire would rest upon them in order to raise them up to be a voice to the people and communicate to God or to, uh, on, on behalf of God. If, it's really a brilliant plan if you stop and think about it. Is that how do you interact with a being that is not like you, that you have created, that has language. You possess another being who speaks on your behalf, and you give him the ability to do things that none of the other beings can do. Why do you do that? So they will listen, because they know that it's not normal what this person could do. Thus, we have people like Moses. And Moses, the fire of God, when he learns to submit to God in humility, instead of acting out of the way that he wanted the act, remember he first felt the call of God, and so he took matters into his own hands, and he kills the Egyptian, and that causes him to flee into the wilderness for 40 years. And what was it finally after four decades that he recognized? The burning bush. He began to respect and understand the fire of God. And so as he did that, then the fire of God came to rest upon him. And what was he able to do? He was able to do the miraculous. So he goes into Egypt and he tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. God is going to do something through us. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And we know we study that. And there are the plagues that happen to Egypt. And eventually 
God um, uses Moses to lead the people out of the bondage of, it, uh, of, of captivity. And again, that is a picture of what Jesus does for us in our lives. As we look to him, as the people look to Moses, they were led out of slavery. We look to Jesus and we are led out of the slavery of sin. And so here, by possessing the fire, we see in the Old Testament that Micah was chosen by God and the fire comes to rest upon him. Well, at Pentecost, the fire falls on all believers. And so everything that happens in the Old Testament is before Jesus, and Jesus is God in the flesh. And so at Pentecost, what happens is we study in um, Acts chapter 2, and they're all there afraid. The early disciples, they're hidden in a room, and they're intimidated by the powers that be and that exist in their governments and the Jewish people that wanted to kill them because Jesus has been killed. And so they do what Jesus told them to do. They wait and for an appointed time. And they're in, a, in this room and they're praying. And all of a sudden what happens? Tongues of fire fall upon them. And they come out speaking a common language that people could understand about the gospel message and who Jesus was. And it forever changed the world because the church was born in that moment. And what was it that allowed them to possess that fire? It was their relationship to Jesus. Now, why is the fire important? Because, why is it important for God to have a consuming, to be a consuming fire? Is that when we enter into a relationship with God, that what we can expect to happen is the consuming fire of God falls on us and it melts our sinful hearts. That's why the word says that therefore, if any man is a new creation, or if he's in Christ, he is a new creation. And so as the fire of God falls on my life, my sinful heart is melted. I'm reborn with a heart like the Lord's. I have now, as Paul says, the mind of Christ. And so I start thinking differently. I start acting differently. And I don't love the things that I formerly loved. I begin to hate them. Though my flesh still has uh, an uncanny ability to crave them, my spirit says no, like we now have a new heart and we resist that. And so now we are in a battle as we try to bring glory and honor to God to resist and die to the flesh so that the spirit of God might be raised up in us. And the more that we yield to the fire of God, the more fire of God we possess in our lives. And so sometimes we look at people and we go, man, this person says they're a Christian. And we go, well, what is going on in their lives? Where is the fire of God showing up in your life? If the fire of God is not showing up in your life, I think one must have to scratch their head and go, do you know the Lord? Like, has the fire of God ever consumed your dead heart and melted it and given you a new heart for the Lord? And that's what Jesus called in John chapter 3, being born again. And so as we begin to understand the, the, the heart for the Lord, what we learn, and I'll refer to you to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And this is what Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if you pray a simple prayer and you say, man, I, I believe in Jesus, you will be saved? It doesn't mean that. You've been tricked if, if you've been taught that. What it means is that everyone who comes to a place in their lives where they realize their sinfulness, and they realize their offensiveness to God. 
They realize their hopelessness. They realize that God is a consuming fire. They realize that God is wrathful and they deserve the very wrath of God. And they go, why, would, why have I not received the wrath of God? And the Lord opens up their understanding of the gospel and says, I came to receive the wrath in your stead as a man. My name was Jesus. And I died on the cross in place of you so that if you call on me in your understanding of this, my fire will rest upon you. I will indwell you with my spirit. I will melt your dead heart and I will give you a new heart that loves righteousness and hates sin. Before you receive Jesus, then what happens is you love sin and you don't care anything about righteousness. But when God melts your heart and you call upon the name of Jesus, because of your understanding of the good news of the gospel and the fire of God rests upon you and you call out to Christ, you know you are guilty and the fire of God comes to rest on you. I'm happy to report this morning that this past week was a glorious week for us in the Holbrook home. Um, our final and fifth child called on the name of the Lord. Amen. Yeah, we're thankful for that. I have been very careful throughout all of their lives to never talk to them much about it until they bring it up. And you guys know, the whole family knows this, and so I don't even try to hide it. Zoe is my baby, okay? And I have talked to the Lord about her. And I, I've been concerned because all the other kids at a different time in life had already made that profession of faith, but I didn't want to influence her because anything I asked her to do, she would just do it, okay? That's just the kind of kid she is. And so I just talked to the Lord for the last several years. I've been in, um, in discussions with him. Lord, that Zoe needs to, she needs to have that experience where she calls on your name. And so last, last week that happened for her, and it was so encouraging because when Abby called me into the room, um, and, and Zoe began to talk about what happened. Well, immediately, she just broke with emotion. And why is that? Why is it that she's breaking with emotion? Is it because of a realization of the sinfulness of, that exists inside of her and what God has done in her life? Okay, so like if I get overwhelmed sometimes and begin to think about my sin and what God has done in my life, then, then I realize the grace of God. And so what is, what, what, when we say a person gets saved, we don't just mean they utter words. We don't just mean they say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart. That's part of it. But it's almost like if you're not careful, you can say, well, if you don't apologize to your brother, I'm taking away your device. No, I'm sorry, right? It doesn't mean anything. I just want my device. And if we're not careful when it comes to the kingdom, we can teach people that as long as you say these words, it's like a genie in the bottle and all of a sudden your sins are forgiven. Your sins are not forgiven until you realize you're a sinner and you confess them. And God burns up your dead heart and gives you a new one. And so it doesn't matter if you've said something, if you haven't actually laid hold of it and believed it and it's transformed you. And I fear that in the church we have not done a good job of teaching people the significance of the transaction that is taking place. When you say, I give my life to the Lord, you're saying, you own me, Jesus. 
And then in that moment, he no longer <clears throat> is just somebody in the distance. He no longer is just Savior. He is Lord of my life. And so then we read in the following, in two chapters later, Paul says this in Romans 12. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. And so what, what does that mean? It means that we need to walk in heat. Like the, the word um, that is used there is the, the Greek word zeo, and it means to boil hot. And so there's a calling for us to be obedient followers of Jesus that we walk in white hot faith, is that, that we don't walk in faith that is lukewarm, that, that we're incapable of it because we have recognized that the fire of God has entered my life and it has transformed me and now I'm led by that fire. I'm no longer led by my own selfish dreams and desires. And so how do we walk in that white hotness? Well, here's the deal, man. The fire comes from his word. That's where it comes. What is the spirit's role? The spirit's role is to help us to understand the truth of his word, to help us to remember things. If you study John chapter 16 and 15, 16 and, and 17, you will see that there is a theology of the Holy Spirit, which is the fire. And one of the things that he does is to help us remember the things that we've learned. He can help us remember things we've heard in, in sermons. He can help us recall things that we have read in the word. We could be ministering to someone and need to speak truth into their lives. And just simply because we read it two weeks ago, all of a sudden we can find when we're led of the fire that it just comes out of our mouths. Why? Because the consuming fire that we can um, be that can, we can be consumed by can consume us in such a way that it starts to consume the people around us, and that's the way the gospel is supposed to move. Is we become white hot for the Lord because what happens is is when we eat the word. Okay, um, John the Revelator he uses that visionary um, uh, imagery and he says the the angel said to him, "Eat the book." And and we like to say at OPCC, "Eat the word, man." Don't just read it, eat it. What does it mean? Consume it, savor it. Take a few verses and, and lay them into your spiritual stomach and digest them and say, what does this mean for me? And what you will find is the, 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 the fire of the Lord will begin to sh be shared with you as the Holy Spirit illuminates, turns the lights on for you and helps you to comprehend what you've read. You begin to apply it to your life and you recognize you're walking in sin somewhere. You confess it to the Lord and you say, Lord, man, I'm sorry for how I I didn't even know about this. And you ask for forgiveness and the Lord raises you up and he begins to elevate you because you've humbled yourself and recognized that he's active in the world. He's a consuming fire. And now he is willing to share that fire with you because you're walking in the fullness of the spirit. And so we become white hot for the Lord because he shares his heat with us. And that is why as a ministry, we are so focused on discipleship. And that is why it is so important because it puts the people who are trying to make disciples in a position where they must rely on the fire of God because you can't make a disciple without the fire of God being present in your life. All you will make is the same thing the Pharisees made, is one person who's more, 10 times more hypocritical than you are. It requires the fire of God to make a discipleship. It doesn't require the fire of God to... to, to to, or to make a disciple. It doesn't require the fire of God to come to church. It doesn't require the fire of God to be a part of a Bible study. Like, but when it comes to making disciples, 
Like, and you can make disciples in both of those venues. But the point I'm trying to make is that when it comes to making disciples, it's never going to happen without the fire of God being present in your life. And so that's why I encourage those of you who are making disciples, man, if you hear anything, hear this. The most important thing for you is not to understand the lesson that you're going to be sharing with your group this week. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you're meeting with the Lord on a a routine rhythm and the fire of God is falling in your life so that when you come into that group and you have something to say to those men or those women, there's something coming out of you that is worth listening to because it come straight from the throne itself. And that's why, like, when we actively and intentionally engage in discipleships, we're putting ourselves in a place of desperation because we know that the Lord must show, and that's how the fire keeps burning. And so here's the big idea. If you burn with the Lord, you won't be burned by him. And so burn with the Lord. You say, well, and here's the deal, is that ultimately the worst kind of burning by the Lord is to be eternally separated from him. But don't think for a minute that you can't be one of his child and be burned by him. Like he chastens his children. And so if we are cavalier about this and we don't get serious about him and who he is and, and committed and seriously devoted to him, then we end up getting burned by the fire because we're playing with it. And we know we teach children don't play with the fire. The fire is to be respected. And so it is to be utilized for the kingdom to advance it. And so I wanna close with um, just reading this passage out of Hebrews because I, I, all of this obviously is coming from Old Testament teaching. I'm going into New Testament as well, but, but I think the writer of Hebrews really sums this up. And this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It'd be a little bit of a lengthy reading, but I think it kind of puts it all together what I'm trying to say here. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears." You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was being commanded. Even If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stone. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So so the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to that. And so he's referring to the Old Testament when the fire of God would fall individually on people for specific purposes. Well, we know that the fire fell on Mount Sinai and God gave the law there. And it was so terrifying to the people, man. And they were told that if you get near this mountain, you take that person out and stone them. See, it's it's showing us the significance. He says, you haven't come to that mountain because that's pre-Jesus. He says, but you've come to this mountain. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. 
You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's he saying? He's saying judgment is coming. He's like, he said, it came upon them and it's going to come upon us. But the difference is going to be this, that last time it just shook a place on the planet. The next time is shaking up everything. And the only thing that will remain is what can't be shaken. And the only thing that can't be shaken is those who possess what is doing the shaking. Okay? And so when we live our lives and we go, man, I got all these things to do this week at work. I got all this stuff to do at home. And, and, and I get it. I, I've got all those things to do as well but nothing matters when it comes to comparing it to what we have to do for the kingdom. And so my encouragement to you today as we land this is may the word of the Lord encourage you to burn white hot with faith, to be filled with the fire of the Lord. And if you never have done so in your life, may you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.